The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear series, we talk with Bruce Johnson about the history and evolution of mountain tents the founders and designers behind them, and why we are fascinated by shelter as pieces of gear. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And joining me again for our History of Gear series is Bruce Johnson, a gear historian and creator of History of Gear. Um, Bruce, it's been fun to talk with you the last I mean, it's probably a couple months now about different companies uh, in the outdoor industry and, and their influence and your personal connection with the products. I appreciate you taking time. Um, and, and this is kind of a different episode because we're going to be talking about specific products and not necessarily brands. Most of our episodes are focused on a single brand, right? Um, and this one is, is about the evolution of tents for the mountains, which I love the title of your presentation that you're going to walk us through today. Um, so thanks for joining me again, Bruce. Well, you're sure welcome. I, I love sharing this stuff. I, I'm a gear nut. Uh, tents, um, this is one that just sort of developed. Uh, I hadn't planned to have an episode about the evolution of uh, uh, mountain-worthy tents, but it just kind of developed, and uh, so here I am. Yeah, so that leads me to the question, why tents? You know, why, well, why, this, why this product in particular? Yeah, tents to me are different than the other gear that we carry. They have a, I think, a really primordial kind of meaning for people. If you think about people coming out of Africa way back when and heading toward Europe, leaving behind this hot climate, and heading up into Europe, where the further north they went, the colder and more terrible the weather became, especially considering they were uh, in between the ice ages back then. And pretty soon as they tried to move north, uh, it was like life or death. If you didn't have good shelter, you were dead. So <clears throat> safety in a hostile world. And when you play that out against modern people, going up into the high mountains, especially on the expeditionary kind of things, if you don't have a tent that'll stand up to things, you're dead. Just literally, you're dead. And so since people have been going on these big mountain climbs, they've had a need for the best tents they can figure out. And that has led to an evolution of tents over the last 150 years or so. So we'll start off with the basic tents that people invented 
back in the 1860s and go from there and end up at the present. And it's my overview. This is my theory, my overview. And, you know, I'm not a tent designer myself. I know some people who are, but I'm not a tent designer myself. So these views are my own. And if uh, people who are uh, really into this uh, look at what I'm going to say today and go, well, what about this or what about that or what about this tent? Why did you leave that one out? This is just my thing, and I did it, and uh, I hope it generates ideas and, and interest. Well, I think it's helpful because there's not a lot of people who have kind of tied together this narrative around the history of, of tents, especially performance tents or tents for, for extreme environments like this. Um, you know, a lot of people have kind of talked to, you know, specific tent designers, but as a historian yourself, right, your kind of job is to, you know, take these individual innovations or uh, products or brands or individuals and tie them into a story, right? Um, and that story continues to evolve, right? Like you're going to learn things, yeah. I'm going to learn things, and then we'll insert, you know, those products or companies or people who are a part of this history into that history when we learn about them, right? So that's it's helpful for people to reach out and say, well, what about this? Well, maybe that's someone we hadn't heard about before and, and we can kind of insert them into the history. Um, this is constantly growing and evolving, um, the work that you do, right? There's always more history to discover. And it's interesting. I'm glad that you mentioned that the evolution, the history of tents is tens, tens of thousands of years, right? This isn't, but, but we're like focusing on a very small, you know, the more recent history um, of mountain tents, right? Yeah. Um, so definitely have to, yeah, I think that's a good disclaimer there. There's, there's a very long history before what we're going to talk about. Um, but uh, I, I think it's important to know um, the recent history and, and we can peel back the curtain a little bit on, on ancient history too, if we want to at some point. But um, I'm glad that we're kind of focusing on a, a, a small area at this point. So today we're going to talk about the evolution of tents for the mountains. Now, of course, there were always tents in history, tents of one kind or another. The Native Americans here in North America were famed for their teepees, of course, but those weren't tents for the mountains. And there's always been a history of car camping tents, like we see here. Most of these things are big, heavy. You can stand up in them often using things like heavy metal poles or fiberglass poles that are uh, not even shock corded so they can be challenging to uh, put up. We're going to talk about tents for the mountains, tents for real mountains. Here's an example, and we'll meet this particular tent later on as we go through the show here. The first generation of mountain tents, I trace back to the 1860s when a uh, guy named Wimper, funny spelling, W-H-Y-M-P-E-R, invented a tent. Now, he just happens to be the guy who first climbed the Matterhorn. So he had some real credentials for this kind of thing. So this tent basically is an A-frame tent, one of the basic designs of a tent, the A-frame, using two sticks in the front, two sticks in the rear, made out of wood about six foot, six inches long, bolted together at the top with a climbing rope running 
through the ridge of the tent and then staked down at each end into the ground. These things were big and heavy. These weren't even nylon ropes. They hadn't been invented yet. Obviously, the poles aren't aluminum or even steel. They're just wood. They don't collapse. Uh, you can imagine the difficulty in transporting one of these things. They weighed about 22 pounds. Most of them didn't have floors or they had uh, separate floors. So about 15, 20 years later, another climber, this guy favored lightweight climbing, Albert Mummery invented a little tent that was much lighter and smaller using upended ice axes at each end. And ice axes during those times were quite a bit longer than what people favor nowadays. The material switched from being a real heavy canvas-like material to oiled silk, something I've never seen. But I do want to point out the past and the present ultralight movement. Doesn't this remind you of the modern tents where they are using hiking poles? So basically you have a hiking pole tent. Yeah, you're really using something that you already have as as your support and structure for for the shelter, right? And something similar was kind of happening during the Civil War era, right? You had pup tents. Maybe I'm jumping the gun. Um, oh, but pup tents, yeah. It's good you bring up pup tents. Uh, some of us who were in scouts long ago had to <laughs> spend nights in pup tents, which were basically uh, a tarp that you suspended over you or you found some sticks to prop up over you they were miserable and i learned that the uh derivation of the name pup tent was back in the civil war when uh commanders would give the soldiers just a piece of tarp and they would use their rifles at each end and then crawl in for the night into these miserable little things with no floors uh and the saying was that even an adult dog couldn't fit, only a pup could. Mm. And oh, so yeah. it was a real derogatory <laughs> term. But kind of a similar concept, right? Happening in, in North America is, is happening in, in Europe, right? And I don't know if you're going to bounce between some of that, but it seems like there's, there's tent innovations happening on, on both sides of the ocean. But, but, but mostly what we're talking about, the memory tent, um, whimper, those, those are in Europe. And it seems like that's where a lot of the innovations are happening. Is that right? Well, the whole European uh, uh, climbing scene, gear scene, was always quite a bit ahead of the U.S. Uh, right. The U.S. began to catch up after a while. But for decades, many decades, these two tents were the staples in all the big expeditions, the Wimper what, tent and the Mummery. What were their influences, Albert Mummery and Wimper? What were they using before this? Kind of what was... What was the state of tents, mountain tents, before they, you know, created these variations? You know, um, I haven't thoroughly researched that. Uh, you have to really remember that hardcore mountains, mountain climbing, especially expeditions, didn't didn't really begin until a certain point in history, and and that was right around this time. Uh, the uh, mid-1800s and uh, basically in the Alps. Um, you had big military tents weighing tons that were made out of heavy things that were 
before this, but they weren't part of the mountain scene. Um, and what was the influence of these? Well, Albert Mummery, uh, only a few years after he invented his tent, uh, he got himself killed in an avalanche on uh, uh, Nanga Parbat. Um, so that was the end of his influence. But his tent went on, and people manufactured it for many years. And the Wimper tent, uh, same kind of deal. Uh, Wimper himself went on died at more of a normal age. There wasn't a lot of competition way back then. And these were individuals making themselves them for themselves personally, or were both of these were, were these commercially viable? Well, good questions. Well, they became commercial, but they got started by these people. It seems like that's how things usually start in the outdoor industry, right? It's someone who likes these activities or is a mountaineer, is a climber, finds a need, makes a thing for themselves, and then they find out, oh, this is could actually become something or become a business. Now, did either of these two start companies or did someone get their ideas later on and, and turn those ideas in, into companies? You know, those again are good questions. Um, no, neither one of these guys w was interested in starting a tent company, but uh, especially the early expeditions were like major logistical things in, in Great Britain. And there were uh, huge layers of bureaucracy and, and uh, companies who'd been around making fabric things for 200 years who were vying for contracts and it was a big deal, but, but yeah, they started being produced for other people, for expeditions uh, especially, and went on for a long, long time, decades and decades. Here's an interesting picture. This is a modified mummery tent in the Karakaram, uh, which is kind of a part of the Himalayas, essentially. Uh, this is a woman, and this caused me to remember that uh, in the early days of uh, mountaineering, uh, there were a lot of women in, in Oregon where I uh, grew up. The uh, big climbing club is the Mazamas have been around forever and still are. Uh, and early pictures of their climbs, um, there'll be like a line of 50 people. And there's a bunch of women in skirts. Um, so here's somebody in 1908 in the Karakaram. I don't know if she was actually a climber, but there she is. Yeah, it kind of looks like, is she holding an, an, an ice axe or some kind of tool in her hand there? Yeah, that is uh, the ice axe of yore. Uh, back in the uh, early days, ice axes were more like walking sticks. They were very lengthy. Twice the length, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I call this major evolution number one, early 1950s. This is a, a Jerry mountaineering tent, nylon had been introduced. And Jerry was one of the, the first to attempt using it in a real live tent. So here's the uh, Jerry Himalayan tent using nylon. It's an A-frame, heavily reinforced. It's got mid poles made out of bendable fiberglass, aluminum poles, snow flaps to keep the wind from going underneath, a tunnel, a cook hole. And this tent went on the 1953 British Mount Everest expedition, which conquered Mount Everest for the first time, the famous, famous climb. And along on that trip were also mummery and whimper tents. So this was the crossover where the old met the new. 
Right. So that's, I mean, there's a period of, I mean, the whimper tent was 1860s. Yeah. And we're talking 1950s. Um, yeah. It's a pretty big gap um, with no major innovations. I mean, there was tent making happening, but maybe not on the mountaineering side because it seems like there were tent companies popping up. Eureka, right? Is, they, uh, is that the oldest, oldest tent maker still in operation? Uh, Eureka, uh, you'll see a label here coming up soon. Eureka um, began in 1895. So they were around, but uh, they were using these heavy canvassy materials uh, for a very long time. And even after nylon got on the market, like in this tent. So they were not players in the mountain tent. Right. So there, there are tent makers uh, kind of in, in between this time, but just not, not a lot happening in the mountaineering space, it sounds like. Yeah. Because I like for, for us in Utah, um, Kirkham is the big tent, tent maker, spring bar tents. And that's, they've been around since the 1940s, but never a mountaineering tent company. Um, so it sounds like stuff, stuff's been happening in, the, in that period of time, that long gap, but it isn't until Jerry. I mean, that's why Jerry is so significant, right? Is he really took mountaineering tents to the next level. Is that safe to say? Yes, I think that is safe to say. Um, from the catalog, uh, 19, I believe, 64 catalog, um, it's uh, saying Everest, 1953 and 1963, the American expedition first put Americans on top. Also, Makalu, Rakaposhi, Gasherbrum, Masherbrum, to name but a few of the peaks. Uh, so this tent and its smaller brother here, the, the, they call it the mountain tent, uh, they really dominate for a long time. Hollybar, you know, also in Boulder, Colorado, uh, they had tents too. But it turned out that they didn't really compete in, in, the, in the high mountain scene. Uh, this is an early version of the Royal Light tent that they had for a very long time, uh, made out of something they called NP-22, which was uh, a 50-50 blend of nylon and Pima cotton. Not really a competition for the Jerry tent at all. So the major, the major changes that Jerry and Holubar brought, what, what would you say the major innovations would be um, from, you know, going from a whimper to a whimper and a mummery to, to these companies? How did they innovate on, on the category? Nylon. So it was material-based mostly. And then you can get into the poles mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, those early designs were using basically wood for their poles and you can't fold wood. But, so, and, and then whole, whole bar and Jerry kind of, I mean, similar shapes, right? Kind of a variation of the kind of the A-frame mostly no, no significant variations from the shape overall. This tent I put up now, the Quonset tent, that they had in the mid fifties, Holly Bar did. Uh, it's made out of nylon and it's a strange shape that never really caught on. And it certainly wasn't a high altitude tent, but I put it in here just to show some, some of the competition going on, but really the next evolution, uh, I call it evolution number two was uh, the dome movement. In the mid fifties, we started getting 
these dome tents called it initially anyway called the pop tents we had the very famous tent designer bill moss uh creating this thing called the pop tent in 1955 the idea is you take it out of the trunk of your car and it pops up little assembly needed uh these things were bulky they were heavy they weren't even made out of nylon it, it kind of seems like that whole idea coincides with jerry cunningham's idea of just getting everyday people outside kind of that is that in the 50s and 60s he starts to really you know he starts to publish his books and he creates the the kitty carrier and he's really focused on how do we just get everyday people outside this this kind of seems i don't know if, if if this type of pop tent something that's easy for people to set up is born out of that directly, but it seems like there's a movement around that around the same time. Yeah, I would say so. At, at uh, this same general time period, uh, Jerry is not only making the mountain tents, he's making a whole line of lightweight tents that are for his concept of lightweight family backpacking. Just bit more, much more basic design tents, more like just basic little A-frames that are lightweight. Right. So then you have other people hopping in the pop tent idea. You've heard of thermos bottles. This is an early pop tent that's uh, kind of primitive. If you look at the label, thermos. <laughs> mm. So at that time, they were even making tents, not just thermos bottles. Now, was pop tent, pop tent a company or a name? So I see thermos and they say pop tent. Um, or was, was that just kind of a common term that a lot of different companies were saying, this is a pop tent? If, if you look at this label, they, they've got the little seal beside it, pop yeah. tent, yeah. Uh, registered. So it could be that Bill Moss had his, and I don't know legally what right. the video was there. But uh, pop tent itself was a company that Bill Moss started? Uh, Bill Moss... Uh, He's a hard guy to pin down. He invented so many things and so many designs, so many things that were hard to even categorize. Um, I don't know that he ever pursued a patent on, on his little pop tent originally. Um, it says patent pending on this label, so hard to know. And what was, what was Bill's background? You, you, I mean, he's a tent designer. It's, it seems like a hard product to get break into like who teaches you how to make a tent it seems like a lot of these people probably had to figure it out on their own or maybe they worked for jerry someone who already knew how to do it where where did someone like a bill moss come from you know i've got a huge thick book about bill moss um how did he get into it yeah i'd have to go consult that book again but i know he didn't work for any of the major uh gear companies back then um He's just a brilliant genius, man. Um, he is most famous for these huge structures, uh, tensile structures uh, that you can find uh, in major installations. It, you'd have to see pictures, but uh, tents were only a sideline for him that he got into for a while, more toward the latter part of his career. But he had a flair uh, for beautiful designs in yeah. fabric. He, uh, he, he called himself a fabric artist. Well, I, I think that's the interesting thing that you kind of mentioned at the top is um, tents are just so unique. It, it's such a unique piece of gear because 
it's a structure. It's, it's a shelter. It's um, there's architecture involved. And it seems like there's people like Bill who have like an architecture background, potentially. Um, I've heard of plenty of others who, and we'll get into this, some of this, the geodesic domes. I don't want to jump the gun necessarily, but it seems like a lot of that comes out of people who have experience in architecture and they cross over and, and get into tent making or influence tent making. Um, you know, even a more recent company, it's called Tensile and it's a, it's a UK based company that they make suspended tree tents. And it was an architect who wanted to create a suspended, almost hammock tent, you know, suspended at three points, anchor points. Um, but that's an architect, you know, I think that's another piece that makes tents really unique is it's really architecture. It's a structure. Um, and that takes a certain kind of skill set. I don't know if that's the same for every person who gets into the tent making business. Certainly Wimper and Mummery weren't architects, but um, maybe, maybe there's something to that and some influence there. Oh, I think you're on to something important here. And as tents evolved, there began to be more and more artistry put into some of the tents. I uh, wanted to take a, a look at the Blanchard draw tight tent design. These also at the period of, of the pop tents and the dome starting uh, to try to evolve. You had another design. Uh, and this is by Eureka Tent, founded 1895. This tent design basically is an exoskeleton. So you've got a bunch of basically steel piping suspending the tent. And these are strong, but they're heavy and the material, very heavy. Up until this point, the fabric would be draped over your structure, your skeleton, right? Is, is, is this one of the first tents that tried to experiment or branch out of that idea? Well, it could be. It's the first one I'm aware of, at least as far as something that got pretty commercial. Right, which now we see is pretty commonplace to see tents using this type of exoskeleton idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You'll see more of that as we go along here. What um, What year was that? Was that tent from? Oh, this is from the uh, mid fifties. Okay. And then I I included this little thing from an early Eureka brochure on these uh, tents, nineteen sixty one. On the occasion of our 65th anniversary, we take great pride in announcing an amazing new fabric, Polaris cloth, made of 100% DuPont nylon, this mildew-proof tent, blah, blah, blah. Well, Jerry had been using nylon in tents for like 10 years by this point, so it's not an amazing new thing, but there was a lot of inertia uh, or resistance even in, in uh, some of these old line manufacturers when nylon came along. So then we move forward and look, oh look, Eureka has decided they're using nylon now in the draw tight design. And this particular tent, this very tent here was used on a 1978 successful climb of K2 by uh, uh, Jim Whitaker, and it's owned by none other than Don Wittenberger. So these things are not light, but they're really strong, and they had their place in, in high-altitude work. 
down in Southern California, at about the early 60s, you had um, a mechanical engineer, not an architect. Uh, this fellow was, uh, his name is Andy Drollinger, his company A16. Uh, he was mostly famous for uh, one of the very first and best uh, hip carry uh, packs, frame packs. But he also had a sideline, the A16 dome, which basically had your external structure and used nylon. It was nothing special beyond that. Uh, during the 60s and 70s, you had old designs still holding on, people trying to improve them. Trailwise had an excellent mountain tent with a big, strong ridge pole across the top, which eliminated the need for guy lines here. It was a great tent. I owned one. You'll see more of this one. Holly Bar had a tent they made especially for expeditionary use, which is an A-frame, but with the ultimate quality and attention to detail and reinforcements and cook holes and, and snow tunnels and so forth. Uh, a heavy tent. I had one of these, too. And lo and behold, we have a teepee, just like I started the show with. The uh, Sierra Designs, they called it the three-man, uh, but it, it had a, a series of poles, and it was a teepee shape, modern nylon, nylon zippers, excellent tent, not really for the ultimate high mountain use, but very strong, could be used for a season. I had an orange one. All right, so now we move to what I call major evolution number three, warm light tents. Some people call them tunnel tents. An aerospace engineer and pilot in Southern California got to designing tents. Well, why? For his own use. He hated carrying heavy things. He felt like heavy packs hurt him. So he had this whole thing about inventing lightweight things that would do the job. And he applied aerospace principles, aerodynamic principles, I, I would say for the first time in, in a way that was informed by science. And so here you have the shape that he is using. He called it the elliptical arc. It required only one stake at the rear, two stakes at the front, and it was a four-season tent. This is uh, the 1961 version. Um, and I should mention, um, you know, a few of these companies we've mentioned, Warmlight, Jerry, Holyabar, Don Wittenberger with the Yakworks. We've, we've all got, for those watching we, or, or listening, we have previous episodes about each of those companies. So for more on them, go back and listen to those as well. But There you go. Uh, so here we have a... Uh, Warm light three-person version in the Alaska range, up in Alaska, serious mountaineering situation. And here we have the two-person version in the high Arctic. And here we have three versions in three sizes, a five-man, a three-man, and a two-man. The shape, again, very aerodynamic and that was the concept, that was the whole concept. And the poles being smoothly integrated into the shell, the exterior, was a whole part of the concept of smooth airflow. Was there any innovation in the material used for the poles at that time? What, what, I guess we, t we talked about the jump from wood to, to metal. Um, are there any other 
changes, yeah. significant well, changes from, that happened there? Yeah, it went from uh, wood to steel to eventually uh, the, the, the nice aluminum bendy poles mm-hmm. that we all see these days. Who, who started introducing those aluminum poles? Was that around this time or? Uh, I don't know who, who the earliest makers were, but uh, certainly by, by the 60s, you had one major company uh, which used to make arrows, <laughs> the Easton Aluminum Company in uh, California that was making virtually all the tent poles. Uh, Stevenson, however, uh, well, I'll mention this first. Uh, this is the interior of one of those, those three-man tents. Uh, they were very spacious. They are spacious. The headroom's a little limited. And speaking of fabrics, I want to get into the fabrics and then I'll get into the poles. This tent is one of mine and it dates from the late 70s. So put that time clearly in your mind. This is early, late 70s. This tent weighs, it's a three man, it, it weighs about three and a half pounds. Its composition is polyester. Not ripstop nylon, not taffeta, polyester with a vapor deposited uh, like a bronze material on it that makes it this gold overcoated with mylar. Now this thing is like uh, 35 years old and it's, it's weathered quite a bit. I've used it. It's kind of uh, oxidized. It's still waterproof. It still works fine. That's why it looks a little funny. Uh, the Poles that Stevenson used were also a big innovation. These things are much thicker than modern uh, tent poles. They're thin-walled aluminum. And Jack Stevenson himself worked with uh, the owner of Easton. And if you were a metallurgical engineer, you could understand. Uh, Stevenson wrote me this big, long piece on the, uh, the the concept and process of forming these things. But he would uh, himself go into the Easton plant to oversee the very tricky uh, forming of these pre-bent poles. The concept was uh, a lightweight pole that was much stronger than the poles that you, you, you bent severely to put them into your tent, already stressing them by having to bend them like that. And... Finally, um, the Stevenson tents were also very revolutionary because they used impermeable materials. They weren't breathable materials. So Stevenson wrote this himself on the bottom of this ad. This is an ad in a big magazine for Gore-Tex, bragging about how famous Polar explorer Will Stegner and the French explorer whose name I can't say for sure, uh, that they're all using all this Gore-Tex. Well, Stevenson said, but meanwhile, they're using a tent that is the exact antithesis of Gore-Tex that doesn't breathe whatsoever, and that's its concept. That's how it's designed to work, vapor barrier. All right, so moving on, we're at this period in the 1974, 1975 period or so where you've got side-by-side, you've got aerospace super tent with weird materials and here you have 
the classic A-frame with a ridge pole, kind of the ultimate, you might say, strong mountaineering tent uh, of an A-frame, and they're side by side. And this one weighs less than half what this one does. Now, the basic design of the Stevenson tent has flourished. You can find it all over the place now, and you'll see some of that as we go along here. But you see the basic design. It's got its own refinements and tweaks, but two stakes up front, one in the rear. I'm going to pause for a moment to do Don Jensen in the ultimate A-frame. Don Jensen, Rivendale. We talked about Rivendale in a previous episode. Here's Don Jensen up in the high Sierras in the winter, working on the design of his ultimate tent. It's got the ridge pole and, of course, the middle poles and special pullouts distribute the stress. It's got snow flaps. This was his baby, and he was working on it. Meanwhile, domes are becoming more sophisticated, and there's some other design variants propping up. And again, this is in the early 70s to the mid-70s. The Jansport Mountain Dome became very popular and was used a lot on expeditions. So it's basically good nylon, snow flaps, cook holes. Definitely calls back to the pop tent look. Maybe not, not the ease of use necessarily, but definitely the, that shape is there. Yes, it's not a pop tent at all, uh, and it's definitely well adapted for mountain use and not too heavy. Got the snow tunnel, and these were, were very popular for a few years until they got supplanted by a better design. But so we have some time period here where you've got the ultralight space age tent and the better domes design like the mountain tent. And then along the way, there's some other variants, like this is the early winter's omnipotent. And you can see the derivation there. Uh, it's a warm light tent design, really. They just chopped away the, the front and replaced it with these wings here. And it needs the stake out front and the stake in the rear. Has some mid poles. Uh, some of the warm light tents also had mid poles. So back to Don Jensen for a minute. 1972 to 1980, they were producing the perfected bomb shelter. And in terms of that primeval thing about being safe in a hostile world, uh, what better name for a tent than the bomb shelter? <laughs> and this thing was invented to take you through a high mountain hurricane. There are so many design features to this thing that I won't even try to get into. But um, one of the things that's remarkable beyond things like the ridge pole, the very size of it is meant to be small because you don't want a high profile tent when the wind is hitting 100 miles an hour. Small is better. Kind of a variation of an A-frame, but, but what, what are the the significant changes kind of that center pole lower profile uh you know there are elements of this that although not you might say revolutionary uh, contributed to an overall 
design that was insanely strong. The, the rain fly, for instance, is not just a rain fly that flaps around to, to keep the rain off when it rains. It's an integral part of the tent. It's just so carefully designed and cut that it actually clamps down over the top of the tent and increases the strength of the tent instead mm -hmm. of takes it away. Uh, this part of the tent is a prow, P-R-O-W, designed to cut the wind like the prow of a ship. So there's a lot of features to this. And uh, although only 300 were made, I still think it's a really significant uh, tent in the evolution of, of tent. It's like the pinnacle of the strongest mountain A-frame ever made. Well, only 300. Yes. Wow. And, and the 300... Uh, however many still exist, uh, the owners aren't giving them up. Well, 1975-76, a real watershed, uh, geodesic tents are introduced. They crush the competition. They're just so much stronger, uh, and they have a number of features that just uh, overawe the past designs. Uh, this is a guy I know, Bob Howe. Uh, in 1975, he invented whatever, sewed up uh, this tent, but he wants everybody to know, he's told me this, that really at that time in the history of, of deer, there were a lot of people in the Bay Area who were really into geodesics and it wasn't like he was the inventor or the only guy uh, this is bob swanson the uh, co-founder of sierra designs this is a guy bob Gill gillis that we'll talk more about as we go along playing around with little dome designs that they've made there was kind of a bible of the sport that was well known at the time a uh, german guy Frey otto had a whole book on what he called tensile structures. He was born in 1925. And, and, and this was primarily uh, just about tent, tent structures? Yeah. Not, not even tents, yeah. just structures. This is about structures. Call him an architect, perhaps, I guess. Um, but you can see, even in some of these pictures, oh, that looks like the shape of a Stevenson tent, or this looks like the moss harrowing tensile designs and it's really technical as you read through this thing your head starts to swim but people were eating this stuff up especially in the bay area in, in the 70s leading in 1975 to the world's first backpackable geodesic dome tent the oval intention and i had one of course so it encloses a vast volume gives a beautiful spacious feeling inside it is strong the concept of of uh, geodesics is that every every panel is supported by a a, a vertus uh, a crossover and the panels are sewn just so and they are so tight and strong uh, the thing that you notice the most in this if you're a mountaineer is when a big storm hits and the wind is going, the uh, A-frames nearby are cracking and smashing and 
you worry that they're going to go down, and sometimes they do rip apart and go down inside your geodesic. The wind, no matter which direction it comes from, it just sort of pushes against the tent. The stress gets distributed throughout the structure. It creaks a little bit and maybe settles a little more into the ground. You got a huge load of snow on the top. Nothing happens. It just slides off. So what, what you said, what was the name of this, this uh, product in particular? Kind of this one is the Oval Intention. Okay. And that, that company is? North Face. North Face was the first commercially viable. Mm-hmm. And the backstory is that Bob Howell, that guy was holding up the tent, uh, he was right in there at the same time frame. He got a big company in the Bay Area called Snow Lion um, to um, produce his tent. It appeared in their 1976 catalog, his two versions, the Meridian. And that very same year, the company went bankrupt before the catalogs ever got out to the public. So he was kind of almost the first or tied for the first. It's interesting that there were so many people, there were a few people at the same time who had similar ideas um, and launched just around the same time. It's interesting. Yeah, there was a real ferment, uh, especially um, around the Bay Area with this whole thing, Buckminster Fuller and this Frey Auto and people uh, studying this design and starting to put it into uh, use as a, as, a, as a backpackable tent. So here you have, by the late 70s, you have the same old aerospace warm light tent next to one of the geodesics. Uh, this is a North Face geodesic. And again, the warm light tent weighs less than half of what this does. Certainly, they are both very capable of uh, standing up to high mountain weather. Here's a larger version of a geodesic put out by North Face. This really captures the beautiful arcs and designs and the, the panels all supported so beautifully. This is a tent made of Gore-Tex uh, designed by Bob Howe uh, in the early winters catalog in the uh, later 70s. It may be the first geodesic uh, tent made of Gore-Tex. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself slightly. In the same time period, uh, late 70s, early 80s, Jansport got into the action with a tent that they specifically designed to be the strongest, best two-man assault tent for expeditions. This thing has so many poles. They cross over at such tight angles. Uh, this thing is insanely strong, probably the strongest uh, geodesic ever. I might speculate I owned one of these. Um, there were only a few of these made, probably even less than 300. <laughs> and uh, they were taken to the north face uh, of Mount Everest on what they call the China Everest Expedition. In um, 83, the expedition uh, had a major disaster. One of the members was killed. And one of these tents got left up there at 22,000 feet. A year later, they found it. It had been buried with avalanches and God knows what abuse it had gone through. It was fine. They dug it out, perfectly usable still. That's quite the endorsement of that tent. 
Yeah. Here it is on top of Oregon's second highest mountain. How how much was Jansport doing in the tent space? I you know, I I could be very ignorant here. I I don't I don't know a lot about their other products besides packs, right? I mean packs are kind of their bread and butter. How much were they see were were a lot of companies kind of around this time trying to jump into tents and and get into that? Jansport had tents right through the, this period. Uh, this wasn't the only one. Um, you ask a good question. Uh, the original company had been uh, bought out, sold out, whatever. And so the fate of its tents um, after a while into the later 80s, um, I'd have to research what happened to tents. I'm not really too aware. You may have catalogs in your library that would show that show what happened with their tent line. Here's a, uh, some sketching of the China Everest tent. Uh, so as I was saying, the um, geodesic dome was making, just, just taking over in the serious market. Uh, Trail-wise here, they have a geodesic designed by Bob Howe again. And a few years later, and a revised version of the same thing. Okay, so let's get into Gore-Tex. Your, your uh, Rachel Gross interview, um, I was struck by uh, her, her naming of uh, from buckskin to Gore-Tex. Well, as I've tried to portray in this little, this little talk, um, there were a lot of tent innovations, a lot of evolutions. Um, Gore-Tex wasn't the only one, but it was a big one. And it came in 1976, one year after the introduction of the, of the uh, geodesic. The first Gore-Tex tent was the early winters of Seattle, light dimension. You take one look at it and you go, oh, that's a Stevenson tent. <laughs> it's that same design again, isn't it? An interesting thing that a lot of you, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but a lot of these founders didn't feel the need to go and necessarily protect their designs legally, you know, or at it from a legal perspective. And I, I, I believe Stevenson was one of those, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's easy to introduce a few tweaks to a design and say, yeah, well, okay. I, yeah, it's different enough. Yeah. It's different enough. And early winters, they're kind of known as the company that really first, what were they first to, to use Gore-Tex for? It was tents also a, uh, there's uh, the tent, uh, the title of first Gore-Tex tent is pretty assured for them. Um, they, they also could be, if you had to pick one in the field, the first Gore-Tex mountain park. Mm, um, okay. Although that's, there were a bunch of, of uh, manufacturers, companies, whatever, who, who introduced the Gore-Tex mountain park uh, within like six months of each other. Right, right. In okay. 1976. Early Winters also uh, produced a model that had a mid-pole that they, they, they said was for, for winter use. Um, Warm Light had done that also in some of their tents that were more... Um, specialized for uh, expedition. Mountain Safety Research got into it with a Gore-Tex version of it. Pretty much a Stevenson tent design again. Okay, uh, I wanted to mention something important was uh, going on in the industry that uh, 
I'm not aware was uh, really going on uh, previously. Um, very early 90s, um, first time I'm aware that a major company started uh, saying, let's uh, do some real world testing of our tents, scientific testing, real world. Uh, so here we are on top of Mount Shasta, 14,000 feet. Sarah Designs is up there. These aren't just individual gear testers. These aren't people who are uh, just doing it for fun. They're employees doing testing under a very rigorous situation. And within a couple of years after this, they've gone to the top of Mount, Ham uh, New Mount Washington in New Hampshire, uh, which has the world record for uh, winds, land winds, 230 miles an hour and done testing, setting up tents, stress testing them, uh, using some instruments, photographing uh, the tents, including this one, the Sierra Design Tyros, which is a small geodesic, but a true geodesic design. Um, I have one of these, I've had it for years, I love it. That's what it looks like without the fly, just a very tight geodesic structure. This thing, you get inside of it when it's set up and just press on the panels and they're just as tight as a drum. Beautiful tent, it weighs just under eight pounds. So in the modern ultralight sphere, people scorn it. Ugh, too heavy, can't have one of those. <laughs> Uh, Marmot was coming along with a Gore-Tex tent that, again, has the Stevenson shape. Mountain Safety Research, uh, this is a more recent tent, um, maybe five, six, seven years old. Um, again, kind of that Stevenson shape. This one is a single wall design uh, that uh, doesn't breathe. It depends on ventilation. Okay, let's go to the ultralights. I call it the rise of the ultralights. Nowadays, if your tent weighs more than five pounds, no one will touch it. Mm. Oh, it weighs too much. The big Agnes uh, ultralight two. You can see this design you referred to, Chase, where the tent is suspended against this framework of lightweight aluminum. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a kind of a really early innovation that we still see today, which is, is pretty interesting. I mean, that was the, when did Eureka, we potentially introduced that. Yeah, the draw tight tent. Yeah. Oh, those were, uh, as I said, those were in the mid-50s. mid, mid 50s. It's amazing to see that that is something that stuck. Well, you know, um, the contrast, Stevenson tents and some others, um, the poles are inside of sleeves or they're actually inside the tent itself and so you don't have all these little attachment points that under heavy snow or heavy wind conditions can just rip out right yeah which i had happen on uh, mount shasta once with a tent that used that kind of method uh the shape looks very sleek aerodynamic but it's not a mountain tent. This is strictly a three-season tent. It just doesn't have the strength. 
and that structure to withstand heavy wind or heavy snow loads. But it comes in at like under three pounds. One of the uh, things that make ultralight tents in general so light is not just the use of very uh, new age light fabric, but it's the minimal pole structure. It's the lighter gauge poles and they've shrunk everything. The old mountain tents, uh, they would be considered small if they had 35 or uh, 38 square feet of floor space. These modern ultralights are, are uh, generally somewhere around 26, 27 square feet of floor space. Then I th I've thrown in this one, uh, Martin Zemitas, who was a tent designer from forever, uh, worked for Mountain Hardware for many years. He's got his own company now, and he's just got state-of-the-art stuff. This is an ultralight that actually can take serious snow and wind. It's not an expeditionary tent, but uh, it's rated as being one of the few ultralight designs that actually is capable of being more of an all-season tent. And that's sling fin. Sling fin. And this is the ultralight of the ultralight. I just had to throw it in. Uh, my sister is one of these. Uh, so you have your, your tarp, basically, and a hiking pole. You can't get any lighter than that. Unless, and I'll get to that in my last segment, I wanted to throw in a few moss tents. They were always in their own league. They weren't trying to be mountaineering tents. They were really well made, but they were architecturally just amazing. And he had dozens of designs. Uh, Stevenson is still making this design, the basic design. Uh, this is a shortened design, very, very uh, much made to stick on a small ledge if you're climbing. And finally, I call this the major evolution, number seven, the new miracle fabrics, Dyneema, Cuban. Um, earlier than that, you had Sil Nylon, which incidentally, uh, Warm Light was one of the first using Sil Nylon way back when. But here's um, a Dyneema tent. These things are ridiculously light. And the original tarp, tent, tarp, turn it into a pup tent, if you will. Mm -hmm. A little bit of looking forward and backward. Remember Bob Gillis, the guy sitting there with all the tent models? He decided to go a different direction than competing with the North Faces of the world with backpacking tents. Uh, he's had a whole career of producing these very large dome tents, geodesic dome tents, using inexpensive plastic pipes. I hung out for over a week once uh, with this setup. I, I, I slept in my tent and I had this whole big tent over me. And so even if it rained like crazy, I was always dry and my tent was always dry. And back to the state of the art, I consider this kind of the state of the art anymore. Um, for serious high mountain tents, uh, Slingfin has a number of innovations that um, I, I hope we can get him on one of your podcasts to explain, but there's a whole lot of new technology going on here. So there it is, my overview. I hope you've enjoyed it. That's great. Well, I, I guess historians don't really predict the future, but um, 
I, I guess it's, I don't know, it's just been fun to see the major innovations and see that there's still innovation happening. It seems like on the materials level, that's kind of where it's happening. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what the next shape or structure looks like. seems like mostly it's, it's materials, but we're kind of using a lot of the same shapes that we've seen before. Um, I think it's helpful to see that evolution over time. I, this was really helpful. Yeah, thanks, Chase. Yeah, uh, as I said, this is kind of a my version overview of things, and so I hope it generates a lot of conversations and and thinking. And if you have students in your program who uh, uh, trend toward wanting to design tents, there you go. Yeah, I I think seeing the the evolution is really really helpful. It's not just one person who made tents what they are it's I, I don't know it's just so helpful to look back and see this heritage of tent making um and and i think you're right i think tents resonate with people because they there's just something different about them as a shelter um and and the protection they provide and uh, i mean they fulfill one of those basic human needs right which is shelter um so i, yeah. I appreciate you taking time to walk us through the history yeah you've got the basic needs, Abraham Maslow, the hierarchy mm-hmm. of needs, food, shelter, basic safety. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's why they resonate still today and people are so fascinated by them. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley. Thank you.